When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Talk radio and talk TV online on DAB+. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV because it is the one place for you to be uh, to find out what is going on in the big wide world of not just the Tory leadership election but everything else as well. Apparently, here is the news, right? Tobias Elwood has run over a cat. Boris Becker has got a new job. Boris Johnson has still got his old job and he'll be doing Prime Minister's questions later on. Uh, Tom Tugendhat has designed a rather bizarre looking uh, campaign slogan uh, which some people would say spells a word that I don't think he wants to be known for. He's speaking this morning at College Green. We're going to go live down there uh, very shortly to find out what Tom Tugendhat has to say. We are in the midst of what can only be described as the leadership election. Uh, a couple of people pulled out yesterday and are no longer with us. That bloke that nobody's heard of, he's not running anymore. Uh, and also, uh, Grant Shapps, I don't think he's running either. Pretty Patel never did run, uh, but she decided to decline to run, even though she never had started a campaign. Uh, we're told that Rishi Sunak uh, is up to no good, trying to make sure uh, that he comes up against Jeremy Hunt because he he knows he might beat him uh, and therefore he's giving some of his votes to somebody else in order to keep him alive. Sajid Javid, uh, the man who's resigned twice from the cabinet, he's gone. Uh, he's not in it either anymore today. Penny Morden is going to be speaking around about 10.30. We'll bring you that. We're going to speak to Lee Anderson as well. We're going to speak to Ben Habib, uh, who's going to be with us too. He's going to be telling us what he makes of the, uh, what I call shambles of the race to the bottom. Maggie Oliver will join us as well. She's, of course, uh, going to talk about uh, the Asian gangs that raped and abused over 1,000 girls in Telford. We've got a statement uh, from the council there, uh, which is so ridiculous. Uh, I'm not even sure if I'm going to read it out. Also, uh, one of the big highlights today, Sam McAllister is going to be here. Uh, she's somebody uh, who you will want to know because she's the woman uh, who arranged the interview with Prince Andrew for Emily Maitlis at Newsnight. She's just written a book called Scoops, all about uh, the various different people that she's managed to get for Newsnight and for the BBC for various different interviews. But the Andrew story alone uh, is very much worth the opening day ticket for today. She'll be here around about 11 o'clock. Simon Calder joins us as well. Uh, he's going to be here talking about what the shambles of Heathrow Airport is all about. If you're trying to fly out of Heathrow, uh, we'll tell you exactly how difficult that might become. And as I said earlier, Prime Minister's questions. Now, you know as well as I do that there's a Tory leadership race going on, so you would think that Prime Minister's questions might prove to be a bit difficult for the Prime Minister, who has indeed resigned. That would be Boris Johnson. But it turns out that Boris Johnson is actually going to be doing Prime Minister's questions, and so it won't be awkward for him at all. Keir Starmer is also going to be doing Prime Minister's questions. I mean, there's not much he can do now to wound Boris Johnson uh, because he's already gone, even though he's still there. Ian Blackford, of course, who has been calling for the resignation of Boris Johnson ever since he's been Prime Minister, forgot to call for his resignation last week before he actually resigned. So he's missed the boat as well. What's he going to say? Presumably he's just going to ask for some more money like he normally does. Anyway, uh, you know what to do. We want to hear from all of you as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, you will be listening to uh, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. And we will be here until one o'clock. Let's get it on. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, as if you even went away. Uh, we've got lots going on. Uh, it's chaotic here, but uh, don't worry about that because we handle chaos very well. We do it as a matter of course. Ben Habib is, of course, former Brexit Party MEP. Uh, let's find out from him what he makes of it all. Uh, very good morning to you, Ben. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. So, uh, we've got a bit of chaos going on this morning. We've got Tom Tugendhat supposedly taking to uh, the airways very shortly down in College Green. We're not quite sure what he's going to say. Uh, we've got Penny Mordant sort of officially launching her campaign. We've got Sajid Javid dropping out, Priti Patel not running. Um, it's all a bit of a sort of shambles. Really. I, can't, I, I find myself calling it the race to the bottom. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's it's a bit distressing for me anyway to watch Rishi doing so well at these early stages. Mm. Um, you know, he's presided over the creation of this cost of living crisis. He's presided over increasing the national debt by 33%, uh, you know, to record levels. He's presided over increasing taxes to the highest rates as a proportion of GDP since World War II. So we have a borrow, tax and spend chancellor now making the pitch to be the prime minister and apparently having, you know, a broad broad support across the parliamentary party. And, you know, that's quite worrying because it seems to me that he's being rewarded for his awful, uh, albeit two and a half year period, but awful period as as chancellor. Mm. Well, that's right. And I find it difficult to imagine why. Because most people I talk to in the Tory party say we don't think he's a very conservative chancellor. He's not a very conservative individual. Um, he's put taxes up to a level never before seen since the Second World War. Uh, he Absolutely. Seems to like, he seems to like spending lots and lots of taxpayers' money on projects. Absolutely. You know, what on earth is, uh, is good about him if you're a conservative voter? Yeah, and he said something idiotic yesterday. He said it repeatedly, that he wouldn't cut taxes until inflation was under control. But actually, if you want to reduce inflation, there seems to be lost on the majority of people that I've spoken to, in fact. If you want to reduce inflation, reducing VAT, reducing tax on fuel, reducing tax on alcohol, reducing tax on any product yeah. which goes through our system will reduce inflation. Yes. Because Let me just stop you for a second, Ben. We're going live to Tom Tugendhat, who's down on College Green. We'll be right back to you. Let's see what he's saying. Talking about defence spending, we've got to be absolutely clear that we will never put the safety of our country in doubt because of bean counters or spreadsheets. Security always comes before spreadsheets. So this is one of those moments where we've really just got to be very, very careful as we fight this battle of ideas that we make sure that what we're doing is we're reinforcing British strength, we're reinforcing British democracy, we're reinforcing our allies. And I know we can do it. We've got some great ideas out there. There's some fantastic people championing them. I'm looking forward to having this battle, but we do need to make sure we're focused on what we're saying to the world, because you guys, you know it, people watch it, and not just here in the UK. Now, I'll be very happy to take questions. Who's the bean counter you've got in mind? It's the sort of phrase that gets described. Well, I would, I'm not going to name any names, but it's, ab- Give us a clue. it's absolutely up to you to look quite hard at where people are talking about various different things and just see where different people are putting their aim, putting their putting their, their targets, as it were, for defence. So that's where I'm that's where just to follow up with Gary, you've taken a pot shot today at Rishi Sunak, not front a... runner, uh, no. in a race that's already really, really divided. No. You're having a little dig at the person no, that you most fear. No, Beth, I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm explaining the consequences of the words that we used here in this race and that we use as a team, as a Conservative team, as we speak to each other, as we speak to our friends. That's what I'm doing. So are you saying that other candidates are not committed to 2% or 2.5%? Well, you'll you have to ask. It's absolutely up to, the, to you to ask them. That's not for me to say. What is for me to say is just to warn generally that one of the things we've really got to be careful about when we're talking about defence is that we're actually not just talking to ourselves. Andy, people do actually watch your show outside the South Peace. They do actually watch it in other places as well. But Rishi Sunak yesterday was asked specifically about his commitment to defence spending. It does feel as if you are responding. Well, other people, well, Andy, other people have also expressed views on defence spending as well, so this isn't a specific one about anybody. Tom, do you see Rishi Sunak as your main rival in this race? I think there's many main rivals, and I think they're all challenging them. He's accused his competitors of fantasy politics, fantasy economics, saying they're offering fairy tales on spending they can't keep. Is that what you're offering here? You're saying you spend more on defence than in reality we can't afford to. No, what I'm, what I'm making absolutely clear, as you know very well, is that we need to be very careful with the words we use to make sure that what we're actually doing is we are defending our interests overseas, even when we're campaigning for this great democracy. What exactly is your criticism? 
My criticism is only that we need to be very careful about how we express ourselves and how we make sure that we reinforce our allies and reinforce our position around the world. Tom Tugendhat, I just want to ask one other thing. Lots it seems in this race that actually the, the three front runners emerging are Rishi Sunak, uh, Liz Truss, and Penny Mordaunt, right? And Penny Mordaunt is positioning herself as a conviction Brexiteer, but a one-nation Conservative. Now, we know that you are the uh, main candidate at the moment for the one Tom Tugendhat uh, giving a press conference there, talking about bean counters in Downing Street, uh, saying he's not going to name any names. Um, I think he's just joining you there, uh, Ben Habib, and uh, talking about Rishi Sunak, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, funny enough, I heard Beth Rigby asking him about this incredibly divided race. And it's only divided for one reason. It's because Rishi Sunak is running. If Rishi Sunak wasn't in the running, actually, most of the other, all the other, all the other contenders, uh, they're, they're uncontroversial. It's Rishi who's controversial yeah. because it's Rishi who was silent when Partygate blew up and then actually got fined himself. Mm. It was Rishi who created this cost of living crisis. It's Rishi who put the final knife into Boris Johnson. It's Rishi who's got enemies all over the party. And Rishi talked about grown-up politics and being taken seriously. If Rishi really was serious about the economy, really serious about being grown-up, he wouldn't stand for, for, for the position of prime minister. Yeah. He would continue as chancellor. That would be his aim, to actually finish the job that he has so badly done. Yeah. You know, I mean, I found it slightly ironic that in his campaign literature and the three slogans sitting behind him yesterday, one of them was rebuild the economy. Well, I'm sorry. I, I mean, he's the one that wrecked it, isn't he? <laughs> That's it. I mean, to say you have to rebuild the economy is admission. You screwed up. Right. And, um, you know, why would anyone vote for someone who admits they've already got it wrong? And he has got it wrong. Yeah. And yesterday he said he wouldn't cut taxes until inflation was under control. But you have to cut taxes. How are you going to get out of the cost of living crisis if you don't reduce the burden of cost? The government has a direct lever over that through VAT and tax on fuel and national insurance and all the rest of it. The government can help there without spending. It's about putting money into people's pockets so they can do what they wish to do with it and bring down the cost of goods. Mm. It's very simple. And sorry, I'm getting a bit carried away. No, but the, listen, the I, I, thing, I don't blame you, know, you because, you know, I watch this with, with sort of increasing incredulity as none of them appear to want to address the main issues that are worrying people. Net zero, immigration and the economy. Those are the three yeah. things that people care about. Not necessarily in that order, yeah. but that's where we are. Uh, well, one, there is one candidate actually who came out on all of those issues at the beginning, Mike, and that's Suella Braverman. Yeah. I don't know whether you've been following her. I but, have. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I'm, but I'm sort of, but I was put off. I'll be, I'll be honest, Ben. I was put off her by yeah. the fact that she declared that she wanted to run for prime minister before there was even a job available. You know, she did it on you ITV's know, Peston show the night before Peston. Boris survived. Before Boris well, resigned. Well, do you know something? When I heard that, I, I had exactly the same kind of visceral reaction you had, which was like, "Oh, come on, you, you know, he's not even out yet." But when I watched the the interview, I think it's part of a character. I don't, I don't want to come across as some kind of sycophant of Suella Braverman, but I think she can't help but answer a question in a straightforward manner. Uh. And she had thought about it. She was asked the question and she just came out with the answer. And when I watched it again after Boris Johnson had stepped down, uh. that's what I saw. I saw a politician who actually is rare nowadays and she just answered the question without stepping around it. And frankly, I hope she never loses that quality. You know, I, I I was quite heartened by her. Yeah, I mean, I, I can say I've, 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 I've been yeah. told that before, um, and you may well be yeah. right, but then she also appeared on the Today programme the following morning and did exactly the same thing, when presumably she'd had an opportunity to think about how to, to answer To reflect question, on it. Yeah. You know, so I'm not <laughs> entirely enough. sure that... I, that, I mean, that. I, 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 it's not very often I meet somebody more optimistic than myself, Ben, but, you know, listen, <laughs> I'm happy to buy into your uh, your version of events. Here's a question for you, though, and this, and I was saying this, yeah. sort of shouting at the, at the press conference at Rishi Sunak yesterday, Yesterday. My question to Rishi Sunak would be this, and you know, you know as well as I do, we both know reasonably wealthy people. You know, I've got nothing against people who've got a lot of money, absolutely no reason at all not to want to vote them into power. But if you've got a wife who is literally richer than the Queen, who is a citizen of India, uh, who will not give up that citizenship and so therefore will not become a citizen of the United Kingdom, and you are a multi millionaire in your own right, why on earth do you want to be Prime Minister of Britain? 
Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? When he wrote his resignation speech, he said he, he, he conceded that this might be the last ministerial post he, he holds. Yeah. And I thought he was, he, he'd had enough and he was going to retire to the back benches, which I thought was a very uh, respectable and you know, gentlemanly thing to do, given the difficulties he's had with Boris Johnson. But then he virtually immediately stepped forward for the prime ministerial role. And I can't imagine why he wants it. He's going to get a lot of grief. He's going to get a lot of grief. And remember, remember, he is guilty of breaking lockdown laws. He has got a fixed penalty notice. So every time he gets up at PMQs, if he's elected, Keir Starmer is going to accuse him of being a criminal. That is what he is going to have to carry for two and a half years. And that's what the party is going to have to rally around. It's already been under real pressure from that accusation. You know, ultimately, it was a, a death by a thousand cuts for Boris Johnson, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. Repeatedly having these accusations made, co- correctly having these accusations made against him. And Rishi's going to suffer the same thing. He may wish to paint himself as a holier-than-down, straight-talking, honest individual. And he probably is very largely honest, certainly a lot more honest than his, uh, you know, than the current incumbent. But... Um, you know, he's going to have that problem. He broke the law. He's going to have that problem. Yeah. But that's a bit like being the one-eyed man in the land of the blind, isn't it? I mean, he's not exactly, <laughs> you know, he's not exactly showing a clean pair of heels. And I just worry that yeah. anyone who has been in Boris Johnson's government, in his cabinet, um, who can convince anyone uh, in the public, art, in, 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 you know, in, in the voting public, that they didn't have a part to play, a part to play in, in the downfall of our economy. Because all of this talk of tax yeah. cuts, I mean, you know, I know Rishi has said he's not going to ta- make any tax cuts until inflation has been stabilised. But everybody else who's talking about tax cuts, it's like we well, didn't say any of that six months ago when we were clamouring for tax cuts. And we were saying cut taxes, cut the green levy, cut VAT, Absolutely. do something, give Absolutely. us something back. You know, nothing has changed. Uh, a- absolutely. And people were saying it. You were saying it. I was saying it back in October last year. Yeah. It was obvious what had to be done. And and this man has actually increased taxes during that period. But, you know, it's quite interesting. I was speaking to some other Conservative Party sort of supporters yesterday and they asked me who I thought, you know, should be prime minister. And I sort of gave them an answer. And I asked them what they felt. And they said, well, we're not really policy driven. What we want to ensure is that Labour don't get in. And, I, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? That narrative that any Tory party contender is, is good as long as they can keep Labour out of office. Yeah. It's almost that they're devoid of what they wish to do in office. Mm. It's just anything to keep Labour out of office. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's hopeless. Yeah. And you can, I mean, it's, it's, not even, it's not even as good as being the one-eyed leader in a, in a, in a land of blind people. I mean, it's... You know, maybe you've got half an eye open. It's 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 a defeatist right. attitude to well, governments. And it is, and it's always been proven over the years, and uh, as long as I've uh, been following politics, that if you take your eye off the ball and you don't actually do anything that make the people feel better, eventually they'll choose somebody else and they'll go, well, yeah, you've had your go and you've let me down. You haven't done what you said you were going to do, so now I'm going to give the other guys a turn. And that's basically how it works. Ben, stay with us if you will. Tom yeah. Tugendhat's still down uh, at College Green. We'll come back to him uh, if indeed he says anything particularly interesting. He's blaming bean counters and saying it's important not to let them run everything, which must be a, a swing at Rishi Sunak, surely. We'll take your calls uh, and we'll talk to some more uh, very, very influential people coming next on Talk TV. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, Phil in Thurrock says, Sunak has been responsible for writing off more money than even Gordon Brown's infamous IT project. Easy to waste other people's money. Unreasonable to expect the taxpayer to blindly pick up the tab. It must all be accounted for eventually. One of the things, Ben, that a lot of people said to me yesterday on this show uh, was that not only did he sound um, like Tony Blair yesterday, Rishi Sunak, in terms of his diction and the way that he speaks, but some of the things he said sounded very Blairite. And he did that Blair thing where he had a sort of audience of adoring geeks cheering him on every time he said anything. You know, I found it all very uncomfortable and I didn't think it did him any good. I'm amazed that he's still the front runner. It was a it, it, it was a poor show, I thought. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I'm talking about sycophancy. I mean, it was clearly a sycophantic audience. And the only challenging question he had, again, was from Beth Rigby at the end. I don't know if you watched her question when she said, you know, actually, you you have broken the law, Mr. Yeah. Sunak, and you are a divisive individual. Yeah. And he was absolutely on his back foot. He did not like it, and he could not handle it. And he tried to move on and shut the questioning down as fast as possible. Um, I mean, I think, 
he's clearly the runaway favorite. I, I, I looked at the website, you know, while, while you're on a break and I can, he's just had a huge, huge number of MPs just back him in the last few minutes. Right. Um, he's clearly the parliamentary favorite at the moment, but I think when it comes to the hustings, uh, he's going to be decloaked. So we need, we need an opposition to him that is a good debater, someone who can, you know, reveal Rishi Sunak for, for the true individual that he is. And he is, he's basically a socialist. He's mm. more of this kind of con socialist government that we've had for 12 years. And let me just tell people where that's got us. GDP in 12 years has grown 10% in sterling terms. In dollar terms, our GDP has not grown. Mm. The US by comparison has grown by five zero percent You know, our national debt is at 100% of GDP. It's, uh, it's mind boggling. And this has all happened under a Tory government, mm. the successive Tory governments. And he's been one of the worst. Yeah. He added 33% to our national debt in two years with no vision for growth. He's got no plan. All he said yesterday was that he would not be profligate. But my goodness, he's strangling the economy. Right. <laughs> his, his, his battle with inflation is going to ruin the country. And he kept referring to himself as a traditional conservative, which, again, raised an awful lot of he's eyebrows not. around here. A, but it, it struck me not. that perhaps the reason he says that is because actually the Conservative Party, politically in terms of its parliamentary party, has now shifted sort of to the centre ground rather than to the right. And, and that's what he thinks traditional conservatism is, you know, caring yeah. conservatism, you know, looking after people, you know, helping people. You know, I'm sorry, I don't mean that conservatives should be kicking the poor into the gutter, but the no. conservatives should be standing up for those who work hard, uh, who actually do uh, a Absolutely. decent job and who should be able to keep more of the money that they earn for themselves. It's all traditional conservatism is all about giving people opportunities. It's not about equal outcomes. It's about equal opportunities. And I'm afraid governance has become much more about equal outcomes now, which is where Rishi Sunak is. You know, they want to meddle in everything. Instead of cutting, for example, instead of cutting VAT on fuel Mm. in order to help with this cost of living crisis, he came up with a really convoluted scheme of rebates. Yes. You know, I mean, how ridiculous. Why not just eliminate VAT on fuel and keep it simple? Mm. You know, Margaret Thatcher was all about equal opportunities and let and then what happens after that is down to you it's about standing on your own two feet and getting on with life stiff up a lip dealing with the adversity that life inevitably throws mm. at you and getting on with it not this sort of victimhood culture the need for a nanny state to you know marshal everyone through into equal prosperity we are definitely more socialist now than we we have been in the last 40 years mm. and and we see that economically it's reflected in the high tax take that the government has. It's reflected in this massive debt level we're, we're carrying. These are all traditional outcomes of socialism. You wouldn't expect that after 12 years of Conservative no. Party government. Exactly and Rishi right. Sunak, you know, he hasn't got a clue about how to get out of it. He doesn't. And, and the, the, narrative, and, and the yeah. narrative that comes from the front benches of the Tory party now, even under Boris Johnson, uh, is, you know, we've helped more people uh, out of the, uh, you know, out of poverty than anybody else. Well, it's not the Tory party's job to do that. The Tory party's job yeah. is to help people get work, is to make work available, uh, is to make taxes lower so that people earn more and keep more of it. It's nothing to do with handing out taxpayers' money to people because they can't uh, make enough on their own. That's ridiculous. Yeah, well, Boris Johnson famously said in, during the lockdown period, if you, if you lose your job, come and work for the NHS. So basically he was advocating the death of the private sector yeah. and, a, and, and complete state control. And actually that's what we have seen, Mike. You know, through lockdown, we've seen the state sector become a much bigger proportion of the economy. The private sector is still suffering dramatically. And instead of reducing taxes on the private sector, Rishi wants to increase them from 19% corporation tax to 25%. Um, he doesn't understand economics. The, the way to get growth in this country going again is to reduce those taxes. Ditch net zero. You know, the EU, I, and I hope listeners listen to this bit of what I'm about to say. The EU has been a champion of net zero. Mm. The EU is about to legalize gas as a green fuel because it's under pressure. Germany is putting the EU under pressure to declare gas to be green. So why aren't we in the UK doing that ahead of the EU and using our abundant supplies of gas, both in the North Sea and under our feet, to become energy independent and reduce the cost of fuel? I mean, can you imagine what that would do for our economy? 
if we just accepted that gas hmm. is good. Exactly you know, right. A good slogan that, gas is gas a great. Is gas is good is a great slogan. I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's even better than greed is good, which I also quite liked <laughs> back in the eighties. But here's the thing: um, the GDP figures that have come out. I was listening to some analysis of that earlier on this morning on Julia's show, and a large portion of the GDP growth, in fact, a, a, the, the majority of GDP growth, is in the private sector. If it wasn't for the public sector, we'd actually be doing an awful lot better. And yet, we yeah. put more and more money into it and get less and less back. You know, when Trump cut corporation tax in the US, everyone was saying, oh, it was a silly move. It was a stupid move. And actually, within months, you saw the effect of cutting corporation tax tax in the US. Its economy took off under Trump. I mean, Biden has managed to put a, you know, put, put a jackboot on the neck of the yeah. American economy again. But it, the, the private sector is very, very responsive to these kinds of inducements to, 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 to get going. I, you know, take Ireland, take the Republic of Ireland, which has a corporation tax rate of 12%. It's been a tiger economy. And that is largely because of that corporation tax rate. And Rishi Sunak has signed the UK into a global commitment to no less than 15% corporation tax. He doesn't get it. If we cut our corporation tax rate to 15%, which is what Sajid Javid suggested, by the way, and I, one of the good things that Sajid Javid said, we would get companies across, from, across the world wanting to invest in the UK, that gets growth going. Reduce the cost of fuel and become energy independent, that gets growth going. Ditch regulations, ditch these, all these regulations that we've inherited from the EU, which actually Boris Johnson simply has not yet got a grip with. And that would boost, uh, that would boost growth. And if you get growth, you then get a bigger tax take. And if you get a bigger tax take, you balance the books. That's how you do it. You don't tax your way and you don't get you do, you don't tax your way to balancing the books you don't use austerity to get there you have to use growth to get there so you've got to do it through the private sector and rishi sunak needs to learn that basic lesson yeah i think you're absolutely right ben habib thank you very much indeed ben habib the former brexit party mep telling us what he knows and he knows a thing or two about business because he runs a very successful business and has run very many successful businesses rishi sunak doesn't understand tory party economics and conservatism and that's why i think he would make a terrible prime minister let's talk to lee anderson though uh, who of course a tory mp uh, for ashfield uh, one of the new red wall mps a very uh, popular figure uh, within the, those uh, parts of the world where people voted tory for the first time ever. Lee, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Michael. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Lee. It's a busy old day and it's very hot down there on College Green, I'm sure. Uh, I'm glad to see they've given you permission to take your jacket off because, you know, we're very uh, informal here at, uh, at Talk TV. Um, you're supporting Kemi Badenoch. Tell us why. Well, look, Mike, I don't want more of the same. I think the, the party needs to travel in a, in a different direction. I think um, Kemi offers something different. She offers honesty. She's a straight talker, as you probably know. I like straight talking. She's got a plan. Um, the thing about Kemi is when she's in that place over there, when she stands up to speak uh, and, and challenges and takes on the opposition, they are terrified of her. Like I say, she offers truthfulness, honesty, and, and she's, she's almost Thatcher-esque in a way. Mm. You know, she's, she says there's no easy way out of this, but you know, we've, we've, got, to, we've got to dig deep and, and, and trust in this great country of ours. And, I think she's one of the few candidates who are actually banging a drum for this great country of ours and telling us, we're, telling us that we are still a great country. And if we pull together and have a right focus, a right direction with some sensible policies, then we can actually get back on our feet as soon as possible. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And we've seen Tom Tugendhat come out this morning and say that uh, uh, he doesn't think bean counters should be in charge of the Tory party. He wouldn't say what he meant by that. I don't know why, because everybody assume, assuming uh, that uh, he means Rishi, Rishi Sunak, who shouldn't be in charge of the party. What have you made of what he's said so far. Uh, what, what, you're talking about Tom or Yeah, Rishi? well, Tom and Rishi, actually, both of them. Well, look, I mean, I mean, t t Tom's an outsider, let's be honest, he's, he's from the backbenchers. He is, you know, he's he's not going to win. He's got, you know, he's not he's not even in the betting, I don't think, Mike. So, I like Tom, I get on with him. Um, he's a different side of the party to me altogether, but I think he's a good guy with the best interests of the country at heart. Rishi, he, he's another one. I think he, I think he does care about the country. But I just sometimes doubt the, the economic policies. Um, you know, we've become a, a giveaway society where we keep giving people money. That's, they're, they're, for me, 
that's become a bit of a gimmick. We can't just keep giving people 100 quid here, 200 quid there, 400, 1600 quid, whatever. The way you put money back in, in, in people's pockets is through, is through tax breaks, through tax cuts. Mm. Uh, and then let the great British public decide how they spend their money. That's, that's the way you do it. We don't want, I mean, I don't want 400 quid off the council tax, but I've given that away. What I do want is, is a cut in, in, in the rate of income tax to pay. So I can decide where I spend that extra money. Well, exactly right. I mean, I got uh, uh, the income tax, uh, the, the council tax rebate. It was so complicated. I went through the process just to see how easy it was. It's actually not very easy to do. Uh, and when I eventually got it, um, it turns out it's only worth about a, a month and a half's worth of council tax anyway, uh, which I also gave away. And it's really not worth uh, the paper it's written on for most people, is it? If you're really struggling, getting one yeah. month's free council tax out of 12 doesn't yeah. make much difference. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's it, that's it, Mike. You're right. I mean, it's just a temporary thing. It's just a temporary fix. It's a giveaway, and it's costing the country absolutely billions. What people want to see is more money directly in their pay packet, in their pocket, like I say. You know, for me, I'm not an economist, but I do know that the average person in Ashford hasn't got a lot of money. They've not got a lot in savings. And I know that if you save them 30 or 40 quid a week on income tax plus the, the, the green levy, cutting fuel duty, that extra 30 or 40 quid, that's not going into a savings account. That's going back into the local economy because, you know, they're living, they're living week to week, many of my constituents. So it's putting that money back in the economy. And you know what? The Treasury gets it back sooner or later anyway. Well, exactly right. And that's the problem with this Tory government. Um, and in a way, the problem for Boris Johnson, I mean, he's blaming Rishi Sunak for all of the tax rises that have gone on. And he said when Rishi left, well, now we can get on with actually bringing taxes down. But surely the, the problem at the moment is that the Tory party that you belong to and that many people voted for has put taxes up to the highest level since the Second World War. It's not very Tory. No, but we should be the party of low taxation, Mike. I'm hoping that after this uh, leadership election we return to being a Conservative party. Look, I only joined the Conservative party uh, about four years ago and sometimes think that I've not actually got a Conservative government yet, more like a socialist government. Yeah. Now, look, I know a hand's been forced a little bit by, by the pandemic. We, we've, you know, we've borrowed our way out of it now that the war in Ukraine. But, look, if we want to grow the economy, if we want to um, stop inflation, if we want to you know, put an end to the cost of living crisis, the way we do that is having a strong economy. And one of the ways you can do that is by, is, is by cutting corporation, not raising corporation tax, keeping it low or even cutting it. And like I say, income tax cuts, put more people in people's pockets. Mm. Give them that incentive to go out and earn more. Absolutely right. Penny Mordaunt is about to uh, declare her candidacy. We might be moving over to her very shortly, Lee. Um, um, hang on, we're just going to go to her now. If you don't mind hanging around, Lee, we'll come back to you. Penny Mordaunt. And it's about to speak. Passionately together for Brexit. No, she's not. No, I'm going to come back to Lee. Uh, we'll come back. That's Andrea Ledson talking on her behalf. Penny Mordaunt will be speaking very shortly. Lee, let me ask you what you make of Penny Mordaunt. She's quite a, a substantial individual, isn't she? Well, she is. I mean, she, she, she is, Mike. I mean, I like Penny a lot. Uh, you know, I went to speak to Penny last week and I liked what she had to say. Uh, she's a great patriot. She's, she's a Brexiteer like myself. She believes in this country. And you know what? She's, she's not divisive. Uh, she, I think she can bring all parts of the party together. I just think she's a sensible lady, and I think the, the great British public, you know, if it wasn't Kemi, they could go for somebody like Penny. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think she's about to take the stage now. Lee, listen, I'll let you go. Thanks very much indeed. <laughs> Penny Mordaunt uh, wowing the crowd there. Obviously, that is a crowd that is pretty friendly to her, but she humiliated Beth Rigg, which is always worth watching. Um, Kate McCann, Talk TV's own political correspondent, of course, getting her question in as well. And you'd have to say Penny Morden, very, very impressive. Uh, she was accused of being Theresa May with bigger hair by Beth Rigg, which is about as pathetic a question, I think, as I could ever remember hearing uh, on a political platform. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, lots of you uh, are telling me that you're very impressed with her, a proper Conservative, talking about redefining uh, the role of parents uh, with schools, re redefining... Uh, the Tory party, bringing the Tory party back from the dead effectively, saying that uh, she believes the Tory party has lost its way, talking about reforming the civil service, talking about sorting out the armed services, talking about a great many things uh, which an awful lot of people wanted to hear. What we didn't hear, and some of you... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com pointing this out is anything about uh, illegal immigration and not much about net zero but she'll have opportunities to talk about that uh, let's talk to gareth in derbyshire um, and see what he made of it hi gareth 
Good morning, Mike. Morning, sir. Yeah. What did you What did you make of Penny? Yeah, yeah she sounds good. Yeah. If she comes to the last two, I'll vote for her. Yeah, I think I think she's making all the right noises. A couple of things she still needs to do, but she's a much better candidate than Rishi Sunak, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, those three need to get their heads together and make sure Penny or Kemi or Suella get to the last two, really, for the members. Because this idea that Rishi Sunak is the most popular among members, I find that incredulous. I think it's fake news, Mike. Yes. Because, I mean, bear in mind, we have to remember that Rishi Sunak is being backed by Gavin Williamson and Matt Hancock, apparently. Yeah. Now, is he going to have Gavin Williamson as his defence secretary? Because we know he knows how to deal with Russia. Because he, was it at the safari park? What, what did he say about how he was going to deal with Russia? Yes, that's right. He, he's not exactly somebody you'd want to see back in government. And Matt Hancock, no. I mean, for heaven's sake. But bear in mind, Rishi Sunak, you know, he's got all these ideas and plans, but what has he been doing for the last eight months? He's been designing colourful posters yeah. and thinking up his logo. He's been really, so, well, counting his money, presumably. You know, it, really, he's been the Chancellor and he's not been doing the job at all. He's been sitting on his hands just waiting for his opportunity. And I think that's terrible. Yeah. Uh, un unless, in actual fact, he hasn't really got any plans. He hasn't got any fiscal policy, but Penny Morden sounds good. Yeah, so I, th I think she's made a great start. I think a lot of people were very, very excited about what she just said, how she said it, how she appears to be. She looks a great candidate to me. She's getting my vote, ladies and gentlemen. Penny Morden for Prime Minister. That's what I'm saying. This is Talk TV. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the one place where you get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We've just listened to Penny Morden. I'm going to say this. We've just listened to the future Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. I think she's terrific. She needs to get a bit more um, excitable about uh, illegal immigration. She needs to get into net zero a little bit and start talking about uh, not going headlong uh, into the mad rush for green energy. But apart from that, I think most people would say that so far she is the standout candidate. Tom Tugendhat, mouth too small, a lot of people say. Uh, so who wants a Prime Minister with a small mouth? Um, she doesn't have a willy. She said that quite openly. We know that. And it's time for a woman Prime Minister, isn't it? I think so. Uh, give us a call. 0344-499-1000 is the number. Rishi Sunak really doesn't do it for me. I couldn't stand having him for Prime Minister. Absolutely dreadful. Nasty stuff. Coming up in this hour, I'm delighted to say we're going to be introducing you to a woman uh, who you're going to see an awful lot of uh, in the coming weeks, months and years. Sam McAllister, uh, formerly from the BBC, formerly from Newsnight, formerly a barrister, right? One of the top producers uh, possibly described as one of the greatest interview getters of all time. She's the woman, if you might remember this interview, that interviewed Prince Andrew. She got Prince Andrew to talk to the BBC to confess that he didn't sweat, to say that he was not uh, anywhere near the woman who accused him of uh, sleeping with her. He was, in fact, in a Pizza Express in Wokingham. An incredible woman. Uh, I'm glad to say that she's a friend of mine. Sam McAllister is here. Sam. Hello, Michael. How are you? A very good morning to you. Finally, we get you in the studio. Brilliant. I, I don't know where to begin, really. I mean, the story of Prince Andrew, and you know what? We're sitting here, as we do, because here at Talk TV, as much as we think ahead, we don't always think ahead enough, because I don't know if we've even got the clip of Prince Andrew saying anything, have we? They're looking at me, shaking their heads, going, no. We remember it, We Mike. never thought we of that. We remember the clip. But we Who all remember forget? the clip. Unforgettable. But what we didn't know when that clip went out of him you know, sort of talking very plummy and saying, you know, that he didn't know Virginia Giuffray and don't think he'd ever met her. Since then, of course, he's given her a load of money, uh, despite the fact that he still claims he's never met her. You were sitting on the floor, uh, sort of behind him, with your head in your hands, right? I mean, I was about 15 feet behind him. I did actually have a chair. They right. were kind enough to give me a okay. chair. Up against the wall. Yeah. Back of him, back of his shoes, back of his feet, back of his hair, right. back of everything. Right. 15 feet away when that aired right. unbelievable and you see. and I mean you've already had your book serialised the book is called Scoops we should say straight Thank up you, kind. Um, uh, we might even have a picture to flash up but I doubt it we'll see if we can <laughs> find something to do alongside you um, 
But you basically um, describe how you set up the interview, how it took a very long time to get from point A to point B. Oh, there it is. Look, we've got a picture of it. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very well much done, the guys. Thanks to the producer. Well done, guys. Thanks to the producer. See, the producer is the person that Absolutely. really makes, makes the show, <laughs> except in this case, because it's me that makes the show. Um, but, they, you know, but they're very so nice. You say, they're Mike, very so good. you say, Mike. So you say. Anyway, yeah. So, so, I mean, you spent a long time trying to persuade Prince Andrew to talk to you. Tell us that Tell us that story. Yeah, absolutely. I think often, you know, when you see the final piece of television, there's always a story behind the story, right? You know mm. that better than anyone. Yeah. And so obviously I was in touch with the palace. It was a year beforehand that I first had contact. And six months beforehand, I went for the first time to Buckingham Palace. Right. And you know, we've talked about this myself. I thought it was a bit of a jape at that stage. Right. Nobody would do that interview, mm. right? Especially with Newsnight. Right. And that point, about six months before, it was still a bit sort of on the lay low with mm. Jeffrey Epstein. None of the big things had happened. Yeah. And so I turned up, Buckingham Palace, in May of that year, on my own, in ridiculous high boots. I almost broke my neck in, <laughs> like stumbling across the palace right. to meet Amanda Thirsk, who now, obviously, infamously, his former chief of staff. Off. And so I walked into the palace, went upstairs, met her to negotiate an interview with a member of the royal family. Never had one on Newsnight before yeah. for the first time because that was my job, negotiating well, interviews. I mean, interviews with the royal family are very few and far between as Absolutely. well. But, but whenever they are done, it's always quite revealing. But you could never have imagined that this was uh, going to be as revealing as, as what he came out with. No, not, not beyond my wildest dreams. Yeah. I mean, not beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I mm. did it for over a decade. Right. And there is no scenario, A, in which I thought that eventually they would say yes to it, mm. particularly after everything that happened with Epstein. Yeah. It was the focus because of by such the time, criticism. by the time you spoke to him, exactly. Epstein was in prison? or dead. Had, He was already dead? Dead. So, so perhaps that was a, 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 a plus for Andrew in that case, maybe. Yeah, perhaps it was. Perhaps it was. But it certainly wasn't a plus mm. by the time we got to the end of that interview, because as we would all agree, those of us who weren't, you know, in the room, yeah. one of the worst interviews we've ever seen in our yeah. lifetimes in terms of outcome, in terms of answers, in terms of effect mm. and in terms of impact. Yeah. It was just an absolute disaster. And I mean, we were all watching it quite incredulously, as you were. Absolutely. Um, but of course, you'd already seen it happen before it actually went out. I mean, when you when you when you describe in in the book, uh, which was serialised in the Mail a couple of weeks ago, um, how you basically just got got the hell out of Dodge, as it were, with the with the with the uh, with the digital footage, because you thought at some point somebody's going to go. Don't let this woman out of your sight. We can't ever let that go out. Well, absolutely. I mean, Jake Morris, who was one of the producers who was there, he had those tiny little things. They're really like this big. Mm. He had those in his hand. And I remember just looking at them thinking, for God's sake, don't drop them, don't drop them. Yeah. And then we just got the hell out of Dodge, as you put yeah. it. Prince Andrew, meanwhile, who clearly thought that things had gone a lot better. Even I mean, more seismically better. Yeah. Took Emily on a tour. Right. We're in the cab leaving to get back to, you know, back to the BBC yeah. to get this priceless, tiny little piece of tech into the system. Yeah. Hardly believing he said it. Unbelievable to think this will actually make it to air. Yeah. And he's giving them a tour. And did you ever think at some point or other when you got back to the BBC that there would be a phone call that would be made and somebody might say, you can't run that? Well, I, I can't believe there wasn't a phone right. call. I think that's one of the things I'm slightly incredulous about. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that the reputation of the royal family is don't complain, don't get involved. And obviously it was out well, there already. Well, it used already. to be. I mean, used I'm not sure be. if it is anymore because but, William and Harry both now complain about everything, <laughs> don't they? I mean, they're constantly trying to tell people what they can't, can and can't say about them. But you can imagine, Mike, if you got back to the BBC mm. with that interview at that length, yeah. knowing what was in it, you're expecting a call. You're expecting a call to the GG. Yeah. You're expecting a call from a lawyer. Right. I didn't see a lawyer the whole time I was there. Yeah. And, Six to eight months of negotiation from the beginning of the first year. Mm. Never spoke with the lawyer. The no involvement whatsoever. Thing, because obviously Emily is Emily Maitlis. Um, the thing that amazes me, again, from the book, is where you say at one point he turned up with Beatrice, mm. uh, his daughter, That's to right. negotiate this interview, which was going to be partly about his sexual peccadilloes and what he may or may not have done with a 17-year-old girl. And you're thinking, what's his daughter doing there? Well, that was the most extraordinary moment, I have to say, for yeah. me in the negotiation point, mm. because we're waiting for him to arrive. You know, Emily and I have practised our curtsies. I have to say, I was absolutely rubbish at it. It's entirely as you'd expect, <laughs> knowing how good I am at being deferential. <laughs> and around the corner comes Prince Andrew, meeting him for the first time. I do a lot of preparation for mm. negotiations. And so I'd done a lot of research on him. Right. I knew what kind of man he was. Right. And I knew how I was going to go in. Uh -huh. And then, curveball of the century. Oh, by the way, I hope you don't mind. I brought someone with me. I'm thinking... Carter Ruck. I'm thinking lawyer. Yeah. I'm thinking someone. Right. I'm thinking head of the Queen's household. Right. I'm thinking someone who's going to do something. Mm. And instead, 
I've now got to negotiate in front of his young daughter mm. about obviously terrible, damning, horrible allegations yeah. of sexual assault. Right. All of which, of course, he continues to deny. Of course. Despite having paid her some money. We don't know how exactly how much, but several million, we believe, but given to him by his mother. He also mentioned that at one point, after one of the meetings, he goes off um, with Beatrice and says, well, let's go and talk to, to Mummy, i.e. the Queen. Well, that was the most shocking right. thing, I think, because my brain and the situation didn't connect. Mm. So you're sitting there, you get to the end of this negotiation. I wasn't sure if it had been successful, but we knew we were really, really in the fight. We didn't yeah. know who else was in the fight. And at the end of it, he goes, oh, well, let's go and talk to mum. And of course, you're thinking, well, why does a 59-year-old man need to speak to his mum? Right. And then, right. then your brain connects. Yes. And of course, I don't know categorically that he spoke to the Queen, mm. but that was his parting words to us. And right. I was really reeling from that because... You really get it right in the stomach at yeah. that stage. This is the head of our country, the monarch. She's yeah. somewhere in the building yeah. and he's going to go and have a chat with her about whether or not he does this interview, which the world really, mm. really needs to see. And I mean, it's very clear, isn't it? That I mean, I used to do this little cameo of him kind of knocking on the door and going, Mummy, Mummy, uh, can I come and see you? And it's kind of that's his life that he gets his sort of joy from that. And he probably is able to get anything he wants from her because he's supposedly he's her favourite son. Um, and you can imagine that he's telling her that, you know, all of this is nonsense, it's all rubbish, I don't know why they've said it. And she obviously wants to believe that. So you assume that that's the kind of situation that she's in. Well, you do imagine that's the dynamic. And obviously mm. I don't speak from a point of knowledge. I speak from the stereotype of being like, you know, somebody right. in this country who's learnt about Andrew and we believe that he is the Queen's favourite. And you could just imagine in my head that theoretical moment mm. when they do go upstairs, if indeed they did, and the Queen turns to him and says, Andrew, darling, you know, what do you think? And he goes, oh, Sam McAllister, Emily Maitlis, Newsnight, amazing, brilliant idea, we must, must do it. Right. And then she turns to the Rainmaker princess beatrice yeah. the sensible one right and says and what do you think beatrice mm. and i really feel that the answer that beatrice theoretically gave was hugely important mm. to us getting that interview yes and what do you think he thought he was going to get out of it because do you think he thought he was going to clear his name or that he was going to dis detach himself from all the allegations what he must have thought that yeah, I think he thought he was going to get two things out of it. The first thing I think he thought he was going to get out of it was he was going to vindicate himself. Mm. He was going to clear it all up. Right. And the second thing I thought he was going to get out of it was much more personal. The sweet spot, as we call mm. it, in the negotiation term. The sweet spot for him was he wanted to walk Beatrice down the aisle and he wanted right. to have a 60th birthday bash. He wanted to return to public life. Yes. So I'm just going to clear it all up and then I can get back to my old yeah. life. So I would say those, in my view, were the two big motivations of yeah. Prince Andrew in agreeing to do this interview and they were certainly the two things I was pushing relentlessly in the negotiation right. and how on earth did he think it went well I mean it's an impossible question to answer but how I, did he think it went well well I'll tell you why I think it went well because obviously I had a little bit of time to ponder this I think two reasons reason one is you know this better than anybody no one thinks they did a bad interview yeah. right? everyone thinks they're a good interviewee mm. Second reason is the space between self-knowledge and delusion that comes from being the Queen's favourite. You've never been sacked. You've never been knocked back. You've never been poor. You've never had to get a job. Mm. You've never been demoted. You've never had a horrible appraisal. None of those things have ever happened to him. Mm. So the space between his capacity for self-understanding and self-knowledge and his actual abilities, I think, was quite vast because right. of that upbringing. Right. So I think that's why he thought it And do you well. also think that the people around him were not really being truthful with him in terms of what it all looked like or what they thought of him. You know, do you, was there a kind of sycophancy going on? I think that you don't work for someone like that unless you believe in them. I yeah. think that's the same of a major CEO or of a presenter, anybody yeah. like that. I do think... I don't get any respect at all, by the way, so I, mean, I wouldn't... <laughs> I wouldn't uh, suggest that. There's still that. time for you, Mike. There's still <laughs> buy everyone a coffee. Like take them out for lunch, then it'll be fine. Yeah. But I do think that there is. That's very rare in this country to speak truth to power. And one of the hallmarks of me mm. as an individual, as you know, and as a negotiator and as a BBC producer, was that I always went in blunt. Mm. I spoke truth to power. I'm an outsider. I don't care what people think of me in the nicest possible yeah. way. Don't all start tweeting horrible things now that I've said that. Yeah. But I feel that that is unusual in almost every realm of public life, yeah. and particularly in the royal family. So no one's going to go up to him and say, Andrew, this is a terrible idea. You're going to do a terrible mm. job. It's just not realistic. No, but one of his PRs, I think, did say that. And one of them did leave, I think, before that. But we'll Jason come back Stein, to that. Yes. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Sam McAllister is here. She's written a book called Scoops. It's not just about uh, the Prince Andrew interview, because she's also got a lot of other great interviews as well. We'll talk some more about that and more coming up after this. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. 
Welcome back to Talk TV, the home of common sense, the home of plain speaking, straight talking even. And we've got Sam McAllister here. I'm delighted to say talking uh, about an amazing interview. I mean, the great thing about your interview with Prince Andrew, and I say your interview because I, that's what it was. You got it. OK, Emily Maitlis did it. But, you know, you got the interview. Without you, it wouldn't have happened. You're part of sort of royal history now because <laughs> Prince Andrew is where he is, which is basically hiding in a cupboard under the stairs because of what he'd said that night. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book, to be pretentious momentarily, I promise it's only for 10 seconds, Mike, I promise, is that, you know, this was a moment in history. It's the history of broadcasting, of course, but the history of the royal family Mm. and the history of our nation. And for posterity, I really wanted to get it down in writing about the people. Obviously, Emily was phenomenally brilliant, but there's so many people behind a presenter that make these moments of magic occur. Mm. And I wanted wanted people to know about that. But now when people talk about Prince Andrew, that's what they'll remember. 100% all the way. And and the things that he said, which were extraordinary, um, and as I say, the idea that he thought it all went well. I mean, even by your standards of saying, well, of course, something you know, nobody thinks they did a bad, I mean, bad interview. I mean, surely to God, if you if you were him, you'd have gone. Well, maybe I should have said something else. I mean, the not sweating bit was hilarious. Well, I'd heard that where of he started kind of in, embellishing it as well, saying that he had this condition. <laughs> and you're going, no, you haven't. You just haven't. And then, of course, everybody found pictures of him sweating. Well, I think the, the really, really interesting thing for me was that we had that conversation in the negotiation on the Monday. So by the time you saw it, it was a Saturday. It was recorded on the Thursday. So right. I heard it twice in that week. And then the nation heard it on the Saturday. Mm. Was Can you imagine, as a criminal defence barrister, that was the job that I did, yeah. sitting in that room, thinking of, obviously, he believed them to be true, the, the alibi mm. and the explanation on the sweat, and imagining that in a court of law. Mm. Imagine the cross-examination on that imagine the previous inconsistent statements and imagine fundamentally how if it were untrue how easy that would be to disprove and that's what was particularly shocking about it as a journalist of course Mm. but as an ex-barrister I was phenomenally sort of like shocked that he said that on camera and that's why having that kind of legal training is brilliant I mean I only studied law at A level but I always thought of being a lawyer and, and people who I know who are lawyers have always said to me you know you argue like a lawyer and I think that's kind of what you need to be a decent journalist when I think of asking questions to people I think of that kind of you know statement and how you would trap people or or get them to say something that you know you can unpick because that's kind of what happened to him Totally. And I think the other thing it gives you is a gift. As, a, as I said, I did criminal defence only. I didn't prosecute, actually, yeah. was I used to have to walk into a cell. The door would close behind me. In those days, I was in my 20s. Yeah. I could be with somebody who was a crack addict, a triple murderer. Right. I'm on my own in that tiny cell yeah. and I've got to make it work. So when I'm put in Buckingham Palace, of course, it was an intimidating situation in one yeah. sense. But you're used to being thrown in a room mm. with somebody whose life may hang in the balance as yours yes. hangs in the balance. And it gives you an extraordinary skill set. Right. And you've met and interviewed a, an awful lot of interesting people. Julian Assange is another one in the book. Tell us about him. Yeah, Julian Assange is really interesting. Obviously, I negotiated it and somebody else did the interview. Right. A great journalist at The Guardian called Nick, Pop- Nick Hopkins. But so few people have been inside that extraordinary place. In the Ecuadorian embassy. Exactly, Ecuadorian, yeah. just next to Harrods, right. you know, just a step away from Zara, where I may have purchased something on the way in. Quite and not. we walk in, and the security phenomenal, obviously it was a political issue at the yeah. time, and in that tiny room where only a few a handful of journalists ever went, I met Julian Assange, as close to him as I am to you. Yeah. And the thing that really stayed with me from that interview, and I'm sorry if this sounds judgmental and petty, but was the handshake. Mm. Now, I know you're a man with a firm handshake, Mike. I may have broken my hand almost when we met earlier. Very, yeah. very firm. My mum taught me that as well. But Penny Morden's got a firm handshake. And the thing about Julian Assange was that it was, of course, he wasn't very well, but it was a handshake that stayed with me forever. It was limp. It stayed too long, yeah. it lingered, and it left a trail, and many mm. women will know this, across yes. the hand that was a little bit too long. Yes. And it sounds as petty detail, no, but, but it just stayed with me for a decade. But those things are important, aren't they? They you know, are. What was Andrew's handshake like then? Andrew's handshake was extremely firm. Was we, we got on very well, mm. I mean, in the context of the fact that it's a negotiation, mm. and also that I take people at face value, as you know, so yeah. part of a criminal barrister, you're used sure. to taking people at face value, so we right. got on very well. Okay. And BBC-wise, you're not there anymore. I'm you not. left there, what, last year? Was it last year? I did, not even a year ago. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which was kind of when we first met, really, that wasn't was. it? was. And then you were writing the book, and, and there might be other projects that come from the book. I don't know if you can even talk about those. Not yet, but watch okay. out tomorrow. But we will. Um, and... And so um, how have you found yourself um, here in this place and where does it go from here? What do you do next? Well, I think the thing is, is that the BBC is obviously an extraordinary place to work in many ways. And it was a privilege, to be frank, to to work there. Um, And I really enjoyed it for a number of years. But there's a point at which you just want to be set free. 
Obviously, the joy of impartiality mm. is that it makes the BBC a certain way and it has a public responsibility. But the downside of, you know, working there, to be frank, is that you are quite restricted in what you can do. Yeah. And as a producer, you're super restricted. So, Although Newsnight itself has been one of those programmes that has been quite heavily criticised for not being but uh, for not being um, unbiased, you know, and Emily Maitlis in particular. I don't want to get into the whole Emily Maitlis thing, but, you know, she's been criticised quite heavily by the BBC for, and she's now left the BBC as well, you know, for not being... Um, unbiased enough. I think it's a very difficult role because it's it's uh, it's a construct of partiality mm. in a sense, isn't it? Because yeah. we all know it's a fallacy. Yeah, well, we all I know don't. We I mean, I'm, I'm quite open about the fact that I'm that I'm not unbiased because I don't believe. Yeah, that I don't I think anyone be. thinks that you're anything other than uh, than unbiased. Him, I think everyone gets that. I think we drew that. We understand. But I think you might as well sense. say it out, fr- out front. Put it out there front. Of the, front yeah, of, the of house. course. But it's a different it's a different you structure know. here, isn't mm. it? I mean, obviously, part of being a public service broadcaster, which is paid for by the license fee payer, is that you owe them an obligation to treat the viewing public or the listening public as they deserve to be treated i.e that they should receive information impartially and they should receive it and make up their own decisions make up their own minds and i was always passionate about that obviously wouldn't want to to be drawn into commenting about emily and what she did or didn't do but obviously that for me was really important Mm. and i cared passionately about it yes i mean yesterday it was back to gary lineker again because we had the top 10 uh, salaries come out and barry gary barry uh, gary's up there once again and of course the same thing always happens we make him Plank of the Week. He was actually Plank of the Week last of week as well. Uh, but he, he gets a Plank of the Week nomination and people go, well, how much money do you make? And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter how much money I make because you're not paying for it. Whereas, you know, we're all paying for Gary Lineker's salary and we're all paying for these other people who make half a million quid a year. And for many of them, you won't get that kind of money commercially, really. And so it's a sort of false construct in some ways. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I think that there's the, the dichotomy inside the BBC and also with the nation as a whole. We've got mm. a cost of living crisis yeah. and anybody seeing about those kinds of salaries is going to hesitate and pause. Now, that's replicated inside the BBC yeah. where in, I don't think I ever earned more than 10% of any of my percentage salaries. Yes. And I used to see that there would be individuals who spent more on taxes that they expensed and in that a year can't be right because, than I earned in a yeah, year. Yeah, and if you are a, 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 an intrinsic part of the show that you're, you're helping to produce, that can't be right because actually in, in, in probably places like this, you could make more money. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a difficult situation yeah. to be reading. So you get that you get a double whammy. Understandably, people are angry about those salaries. And so you get anger about that. And yeah. then on the other end of it, you yourself may be angry about the disparity, too. But mm. you can't really say anything. So I think it's a double whammy. I completely understand why the public in a cost of living crisis and generally would think those salaries are astronomical. Yeah. And I, you can completely understand why many not very well paid um, people in the BBC Obviously, we were very lucky to have those jobs and those salaries. I'm not detracting from that. But the disparity was very difficult for us too. Right. And have you heard anything from Prince Andrew's people ever since uh, this book has been publicised? I mean, I was going to ask you what it was like to write a book from memory like that, but we've only got about about a minute, so tell me. It was, uh, I've got a really good memory, so that was really lucky. You'll be shocked to hear that I haven't heard. Uh, My invite's probably in the post. Didn't end up in the Tower of London, but like your good self, I think MBE, OBE, CBE, (laughs) not very likely, Mike. So we're in the same boat. I should also say, uh, in terms of full disclosure, which is what we do here, that Sam was, was the person I was with at lunch that time and they wouldn't serve me um, a medium rare hamburger in uh, in roast and I've never been back since yeah I want you I'm to know I'm never going back ever again boycotting either. the place uh, because they wouldn't do it and as I've always said you know by the time they, they brought it they could have given me some they could have given me anything I would have eaten it without knowing well they made a great gin martini though Mike if I they remember did. rightly so you know on that note what more could you ask and for and we must try and do that again look forward um, to it great to see you uh, good luck with the book launch which is tomorrow um, and good luck with, with whatever it comes next after that and I will hopefully see you soon if I can ever stop working uh, long enough to go out for a long lunch which I haven't done for a long time Sam McAllister, the book's called Scoops. Uh, it's going to be out. Is it out now? It's out tomorrow. Tomorrow. So that's how good we are. We get her the day before the book comes out. Go and buy it because uh, she needs to buy me lunch and uh, she needs to live in the style to which I have become accustomed. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Plane cancellations going on, more striking um, and more baggage problems. Uh, we're also hearing that Doncaster Airport is closing down. I don't know what that's all about. Simon, a very good morning to you. Oh, my goodness, Mike. I'm just getting news, just actually coming in as we speak about Doncaster Sheffield Airport. And I'm just seeing literally for the first time the uh, press release that they have put out. Mm. Um, They say that they're beginning a review of strategic options for the uh, airport. They're saying that um, 
they only have one airline left there because Wizz Air popped up, uh, uh, abandoned their base there, uh, namely TUI, and uh, that they are initiating a consultation and engagement program with stakeholders, um, which could unfortunately mean that uh, uh, the airport closes down. Nothing certain yet. And if you've got a flight booked and if you've got a job at Doncaster Sheffield, don't panic yet. Um, but it is an indication of how stressed things are at uh, one of the UK's smaller airports and, of course, at the uh, biggest one as well, Heathrow. Yes, I see that uh, you were tweeting a little bit uh, earlier today, though. Most airlines are still selling Heathrow flights, despite the fact that this cap has been put on. I mean, it's kind of unprecedented to put a cap on the number of passengers at Heathrow, isn't it? Unheard of. We've seen a couple of days this year, um, uh, actually June the 30th and um, just a couple of days ago, that Heathrow put a cap on the number of flights. And that's sort of that's relatively um, standard. These difficult days, Gatwick have got a permanent daily cap this month of uh, 825 flights and other continental airports have done pretty much the same. But to say We've only got space for 100,000 passengers and you can't sell more tickets than that. And by the way, we know that you've already sold slightly over 100,000. So you're going to have to deal with that. Airlines is a bit of a problem. If I can just encapsulate the scale of this for those many uh, viewers who will have, like me, uh, flights to and from Heathrow booked. It is only a cap on departing flights, mm. although there will be some impact on arriving ones if flights are cancelled. Um, the airport says that about 1,500 passengers a day are in excess of that 100,000, and they say they don't want any more on top mm. of that, so that's why they've told the airlines to stop selling. And if yours is one of the flights that's cancelled, or if you're just told, Mike, Graham, do not turn up, we don't want you your, your surplus to requirements, then you're entitled to get flown on the same day. But, of course, you won't be flying from Heathrow because they've told you to um, uh, sling your hook. So you... uh, Michael. Um, But instead, you will be flying from Gatwick, Stansted or Luton. But it's up to you to assert your rights. We haven't... I've talked to some of the airlines. They say, we don't know what's happening yet, except for plucky Singapore airlines who've said... We don't even care if it is Mike Graham who's trying to buy a ticket to Singapore. We're not going to sell him one till uh, the 12th of September. However, of course, if you need to get there, Mike, you can always uh, go on British Airways who are happily selling away. Well, interesting you mentioned British Airways because friends of mine have been telling me that they've been getting uh, text messages from British Airways uh, saying uh, with uh, an exclamation mark inside a triangle, potential service disruption may affect your journey. Please review your options below. Now, what it doesn't say uh, is that that is uh, a a sign that your flight may be cancelled in July. Um, But it says you may wish to um, uh, keep your booking. You may wish to change to another flight for free. Or you may, uh, if you wish to cancel your booking, a refund will only apply if your fair rules allow it. Is this them being clever and trying to get around the compensation scenario? No, I don't think it is. I think it's, but it is, it, it is destabilising people. Now, uh, in, in terms of the disruption ahead, of course, the British Airways passenger service agent strike has been called off. Well, we're expecting there to be a, uh, a general acceptance by those 700 staff who were threatening to strike. There's another dispute coming down the road. This is um, this is some of the refuelers um, who are uh, not actually working for British Airways, but um, they are threatening to strike over the busiest weekend, which is effectively from Friday the 22nd yes. uh, through that weekend. But that's not affecting them. It's, it's just an indication of the general fragility of everything. But I haven't been able to figure out exactly why BA would be saying this at this stage, because right. frankly, Everything this summer looks um, uh, pretty... Um, well, well, this is the thing. Pretty, I mean, it, it, there's no yes. indication. I mean, the people that are talking to me about having got this message are saying their flight is still showing that it's going. Their yeah. flight has not been cancelled. Their flight um, on that particular weekend that you're talking about is still showing uh, that it is in existence and that it's still on time and you can still check in the day before. So it's all a bit confusing, really. Uh, sure, yes. And my advice strongly to you is don't do anything. I've got... Uh, four bookings on British Airways this month and next. I've checked them and you can go on to if you want to and like me you've got too much time on your hands. Uh, You can go on to ba.com forward slash schedules and even if your flight's not on sale, 
Um, it doesn't mean it's not going. It just means that it might be full up. So uh, a couple of my flights, uh, yeah, the, you, you can't buy more tickets on it, but you can actually uh, check and it is in the schedules as going. And if that's the case, then um, uh, just assume that it's going to be OK because those European passenger rights rules that you and I have discussed mean that if there is any problem, then British Airways has to get you to your destination on the same day if that is at all humanly possible even if it means them buying a ticket on a rival airline yes and i mean if they can't do that and you then decide to leave the money in the system as it were and get your own way there um can you then reuse that money to fly somewhere else at another time what you need to do is give british airways a chance to get you another flight now it realistically if my flight for instance on the 27th of uh, uh, july to rome mm. is cancelled they're not going to say oh yes we found you a nice uh, ryanair flight from stansted or would you prefer easyjet from luton they're not going to do that um they might offer me something two days later via madrid yeah. which i will politely decline and at which point i will spend the two three hundred pounds necessary on uh, the EasyJet or Ryanair flight and then claim that back from British okay. Airways. And if they refuse, I'll, I'll just point them to what the Civil Aviation Authority says, which is that um, you've got to get these passengers if you cancel yes. a flight for any reason. It doesn't matter, even if it's the airport saying you've got to cancel that flight. The airline is still responsible mm. for getting you to your destination. And if, and if, for example, the 200 quid that you spend on that flight uh, means that you've still got another thousand quid inside the British Airways system, are you still entitled to get that back from them at that point? Well, well, it, in, in a sense, Mike, I can't see circumstances in which that would happen. So I've spent, I think, somewhere between 150 or 200 pounds on that flight. Mm. So British Airways can keep that as long as they give me back the money um, for my new ticket. Now, of course, if I spot that the new ticket is actually cheaper than the British Airways one, I'm going to say, thanks very much, BA, you've cancelled the flight, I'll take my full cash refund and I'm going to book myself on this other one. But uh, generally, uh, fares are painfully high uh, this, this summer. I mean, London to Nice, one way on EasyJet from Gatwick, uh, wrong side of 400 quid, mm. and that's course without your luggage and your seating and everything so so it's well i spent a fortune to go to italy i can tell you that it's unbelievable how much they've been charging but that's you know that's just my fault for not going on holiday before now listen uh, simon as ever great to talk to you thank you very much indeed simon calder uh, with the straight talk on what's going on at the airports heathrow uh, doncaster of course as well under threat of closure gatwick um luton stansted it's all over the place just make sure you check before you fly, is what I would say. This is Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.